Hi there, I'm Nim, and you're listening to A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On this episode, we're talking about immune thrombocytopenia purpura, when the immune system and the platelets don't get along. You may have heard of it, or you may have even come across a case, maybe in the emergency department, on the ward, an outpatient setting, or on a hematology rotation. It is a key differential to think about when you see low platelets on a full blood count, or in a child that presents with the TKA or purpura. So, it's worth our while to check out what ITP is, how it presents, what's the approach to management, and ultimately, what's the long-term prognosis for a child with ITP. Cool, let's go. First, let's kick off with a few definitions. In this episode, when we say ITP, we primarily mean primary ITP in kids, or more specifically, primary immune thrombocytopenia. ITP was previously known as idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, but the current term immune thrombocytopenia is the widely preserved acronym. And the reason for this is that we want to acknowledge the immune-mediated mechanism of the disorder, hence immune thrombocytopenia, while also acknowledging the fact that many patients may have little to no signs of purpura or bleeding. So long story short, ITP means immune thrombocytopenia. So what is ITP more specifically? From a pathophysiology perspective, ITP is quite complex and abnormalities in both the B-cell and T-cell compartments have been identified. The mechanisms underlying thrombocytopenia involve both increased platelet destruction and in a significant proportion of cases, impaired platelet production. It is thought that a disruption in the regulation of T-helper cell-mediated activation of B-cells is an important factor. These B-cells in turn produce autoantibodies in abundance, leading to opsonization, phagocytosis and complement activation, and finally, destruction of platelets. These autoantibodies further hinder megakaryocyte maturation, and autoreactive cytotoxic T-cells can also destroy megakaryocytes as well as platelets. So all in all, we get a situation where we're not producing enough platelets and also the platelets that I produce are getting broken down. You may be thinking, cool, but what causes ITP? The specific etiology is really unknown in most cases, but it can be triggered by a preceding viral infection, which you may see is a common theme among a lot of autoantibody and autoimmune conditions. Let's shift to something a little bit more practical. ITP in a clinical setting is defined by all of the three. Number one is isolated thrombocytopenia or a platelet count below 100 times 10 to the power 9 platelets per litre. Secondly, the child has to be well with no concerning features on clinical history or examination. And finally, their full blood count and film must be otherwise normal. Whilst ITP is the most common cause of symptomatic thrombocytopenia in children, it is ultimately a diagnosis of exclusion, and there's no one specific laboratory test to confirm the diagnosis. There are three phases of ITP. Newly diagnosed ITP is within three months of diagnosis. ITP that lasts between 3 to 12 months is called persistent ITP, and ITP that lasts more than 12 months is termed as chronic ITP. 
Reassuringly though, 75% of children's ITP resolves within six months and only 10 to 20% go on to develop the chronic form. Now let's check out what ITP may look like when it presents. Typically, ITP presents with the sudden appearance of particular rash, bruising or bleeding in an otherwise healthy appearing child. It peaks in age between 3 to 5 years old and many may have a history of preceding viral illness or even an MMR vaccine. Other than mucocutaneous bleeding, patients with ITP usually appear and feel well. Exposure to thrombocytopenia-inducing drugs, prior history of bleeding and a family history of bleeding are all generally absent. So, on your initial assessment, you're looking for a sudden onset of a particular rash or bruising. They may have symptoms including epistaxis, gum or GI bleeding, hematuria or in older girls, menorrhagia. It's really quite rare to have intracranial hemorrhages, but they need to be asked about or at least the symptoms of them have to be. And these can include headache, nausea, vomiting, lethargy, irritability and decreased consciousness. When something like ITP is a diagnosis of exclusion, as you can imagine, there are a lot of differential diagnoses that we need to consider in our assessment. Essentially, we're thinking about all the things that could either cause bleeding or bruising or cause our bone marrow to not function well. Differentials for ITP include a leukemia or lymphoma, a bacterial or viral infection, sepsis, non-accidental injury, aplastic anemia, underlying rheumatological conditions such as systemic lupus erythematosus, a drug-induced thrombocytopenia such as the use of NSAIDs, or thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura or hemolytic uremic syndrome. You may be thinking those are a lot of differentials, so how do we go about excluding them? Firstly, on a clinical assessment, we need to exclude red flags for alternative diagnosis or anything that suggests those differentials may be at play. This includes anything that sounds like a malignancy, so bone pain, limp, anorexia, weight loss, jaundice or recurrent fevers and sweats. Or something that can sounds like a bit rheumatological, including rashes, arthritis, myalgias, dry eyes, mouth ulcers or recurrent fevers. You also need to check if a family or personal history is present of a bone marrow failure syndrome or of bleeding disorders. And finally, you need to double check whether or not this patient has had any medications that could affect platelet function, such as aspirin or other NSAIDs. Next, we need to order some investigations to help us include or exclude some of those differentials. A full blood count and blood film is the only initial investigation required and the blood film must be reviewed to exclude any alternative diagnoses. Other easily accessible investigations that you may want to include with that initial venipuncture include reticulocyte count to give you an idea of what the bone marrow activity is like, coagulation studies mainly to exclude things like DIC and other causes for bleeding or bruising, you can also do a CHEM20 as well as liver function testing to look if there's any hepatic disease. As you can imagine, all these investigations should be normal and the only thing you find is an isolated thrombocytopenia. Second line investigations aren't needed for clear-cut cases, 
but your consultant may consider them if there is an area of greyness around the presentation. These investigations can include viral serologies, double-stranded DNA or ANA, especially in teenagers if we're considering SLE. You can also do IgA, IgM and IgG levels, as well as T and B lymphocyte subsets and CD4 and CD8 levels. A bone marrow biopsy is not required for diagnosis but may be considered at the discretion of the haematologist if there's any atypical features, such as cytopenias, blasts on the peripheral film, systemic features, splenomegaly, minimal response to standard therapies, or if there's a macrocytic anemia. Rightio, let's get stuck into how we manage ITP. I've taken this information from the RCH and QCH guidelines in Australia, so it's important to look at your local policies for the specifics of management, but the general concepts, they are pretty transferable. Most paediatric patients with ITP without significant bleeding can actually be safely managed as an outpatient. If there is significant bleeding, however, or the diagnosis is unclear, then the child should be admitted for further assessment and management. Without treatment, most paediatric patients with ITP will actually recover a normal platelet count within 6 to 12 months. Therapy has actually not been shown to change the natural history of this recovery, nor has it been shown to reduce the risk of serious hemorrhage. Furthermore, platelet count in paediatric patients with ITP has not been reliably shown to be associated with the risk of serious bleeding, Although it's important to note that most reports of intracranial hemorrhage have occurred in patients with platelet counts below 20. So how do we treat these kids then? Well, both the American Society of Hematology and the International Working Group recommend observation without medications in patients with ITP who don't have severe bleeding, regardless of their platelet count. Any management decision should involve a detailed discussion with the family regarding potential benefits and toxicities expected from the therapy, as well as education regarding the quite low rates of serious hemorrhage in patients with ITP. It's also important to factor in the patient situation. For example, if follow-up can't be assured or the patient lives quite far away outside of direct tertiary or even secondary medical care, the threshold for therapy may be a little bit lower. Most guidelines risk stratify children with ITP into low, moderate and severe risk categories and then dictate whether or not active management is required. Essentially, children with just a few PTKA or even with no bleeding at all can be safely followed up through an outpatient setting and don't need active therapy. We usually repeat a full blood count and review within a week's time and provide the family with copious amounts of education. Children that show pretty clear evidence of bleeding, such as a nosebleed or epistaxis lasting more than five minutes, hematuria, hematoxesia, painful oral purpura or significant menorrhagia, or even worse, bleeding such as intracranial hemorrhage or significant GI bleeds, they require active therapy. So, who gets what? Those with life-threatening bleeding, we do everything for. They may need a platelet transfusion, high-dose IVIG, as well as high-dose IV methylprednisolone. You can also consider tranexamic acid, as well as a surgical team opinion. Those with moderate to severe bleeding, such as 
GI bleeding without hemodynamic instability, they can be given either IVIG or IV steroids at the discretion of your local protocol and hematology advice. Then for those with moderate amounts of bleeding, the first line therapy is oral prednisolone for four to seven days. And if they don't make good response with that, then IVIG may be considered. When comparing IVIG versus steroids in the management of ITP, it's local center dependent as well as looking at what you're really trying to achieve. Steroids in high doses can increase the platelet count as rapidly as IVIG. However, in uncomplicated ITP, prolonged courses of steroids really should be avoided and then you have all the steroid-related side effects. IVIG, on the other hand, has an 80% response rate and has a more rapid response than the traditional steroid course, especially if those steroids are given orally. However, on the flip side, IVIG has a lot of systemic side effects and they are seen in up to a third of cases. This can include transfusion reactions, headaches, hemolysis, and also the need to delay live vaccinations. Additionally, IVIG is quite expensive. So ultimately, the choice for IVIG or steroids is really one that is dictated by the consultants as well as the specialist teams. Let's finish off with what the prognosis is like for those with ITP. About 75% of cases will resolve within three to six months. And in fact, about 95 will be recovered within two years time. 10 to 20% of cases with ITP will actually develop chronic ITP. And that is ITP that lasts longer than a year. There are some risk factors for those who may be more likely to get chronic ITP. And they include adolescent age, less severe thrombocytopenia in the initial diagnosis, an insidious onset of symptoms as opposed to quite a rapid abrupt onset, lack of preceding viral infection, as well as an underlying autoimmune disorder. Early pharmacological therapy does not reduce the likelihood of developing chronic ITP and that is something really important to let patients and their families know about. Predictors of a rapid recovery from an episode of ITP include a recent infection or vaccination, especially from an MMR vaccine, an abrupt onset, an age younger than 10 years old, a platelet count less than 5, and someone who has wet or mucosal purpura. Finally, it's important to know what the risk of major bleeding is in ITP. And luckily, it's very low. It ranges between 0.1 to 0.6%. So the risk of bleeding, you can tell families, is quite low. Okay, it's time for a recap. ITP, or immune thrombocytopenia, is an acquired isolated thrombocytopenia due to immune-mediated destruction of otherwise normal platelets at a rate that exceeds their production. It is clinically defined as isolated thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of less than 100 times 10 to the power 9 platelets per litre. A well child with no other concerning features on clinical history examination and an otherwise normal full blood count and film. ITP is a diagnosis of exclusion. Children with ITP present otherwise well and may have evidence of mucosal bleeding, such as a few petechiae, painless oral purpura, or even some buccal purpura. Mild epistaxis is not uncommon. However, more significant bleeding, such as significant GI bleeds, as well as hematuria and indeed intracranial hemorrhage, is not common. The main investigation you want 
is a full blood count and a film. Additional investigations can be done at the discretion of your consultant. The management of IDP heavily depends on whether or not the patient is bleeding or not, rather than just the platelet count. Options are to watch and wait, give oral or IV steroids, or give IV IG. Thankfully, the prognosis for those with ITP is quite good, with over 75% resolving within six months and 95% resolving within two years. Unfortunately, about 10% of children can get chronic ITP, that's ITP lasting more than a year. And finally, if there's any concerning features or question about an alternative diagnosis, it's important to get your local paediatric team as well as haematology team involved. And that has been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a summary of today's episode, as well as some other great educational content. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, want to collaborate with us or want to get into contact, please email us at spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It has been a pleasure chatting with you and topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.